Shalom and welcome again to another edition of Secrets of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I am Rabbi Richard Adris, your host and the director of Jewish Sacred Aging. Welcome and thank you very, very much for joining us. As many of you know, these podcasts are designed to explore some of the issues, uh, the implications of longevity on our families and our communities and equally on ourselves. And this is a, a a very special day and we welcome our first sponsor to Secrets of Meaning, um, our friends at bookbaby.com. And this is a very, very interesting organization, um, bookbaby.com, where writers become authors. And if you have a manuscript, and I know many of you perhaps are working on a manuscript that you want to have published, but don't know how to get started in doing that, BookBaby provides all the creative services like editing, design, formatting, printing, and most importantly, they help writers become authors by managing the production, distribution, and payment processing for independent authors. And if you'd like more information to get in touch with BookBaby, their phone number is 877-961-6878. That's 877-961-6878. Or you can visit them at the website www.bookbaby.com. That's www.bookbaby.com. This season of the year in, in the Jewish community is um, the lead up to the high holidays, which begin the end of the month, uh, Rosh Hashanah the 25th. And the month prior to that is Elul, the Hebrew month of Elul. And in the tradition, it is a time where we begin to turn our souls in reflection and meditation. Um, to look at the beginning of the brand new year, a conversation with ourselves and mostly a conversation of what we think is the sacred, what some of us perhaps will call God and the implications of what this means for a brand new year. And so to begin these series of conversations about Elul on Seekers of Meaning, it is a great pleasure that we welcome to today's edition uh, Reverend Dr. Richard McCall, the retired professor of historical theology and liturgy at the Episcopal Divinity School, formerly in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Rick, very, very nice to see you. Thank you for joining us. Great and to be he's here. Joined Thank by um, one of the leading lights in interfaith work, Rabbi Larry Kotak, formerly of Brith Kodesh in Rochester, New York, and now uh, lecturing widely on interfaith action uh, in Florida and is a member of the faculty of the St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary located in Boynton Beach, Florida. So Larry, Rick, welcome. Thank you very much for, for your time and joining us on this series of podcasts dealing with the sacred, the uh, numinous, that which we perhaps cannot define theology. So let me begin with something really easy and basic from your own conversations. We welcome Cooper as well, uh, our guest dog for the day. Um, he wants to join in. Well, he may have something to say, you know, who knows? Uh, we, um, how do you guys define theology? What, what is theology to you? And equally important, how do you contrast it with the current buzzword of spirituality? Rick, let me, let me go to you first. Okay. To me, the, of course, the, you take the word apart and it's just, it's, it's God talk, but that is, is a throwaway. It seems to me that what we're trying to do with any kind of theology is, to, is the place where we can talk about meaning. 
that we are not talking about how to do it or necessarily what to do or even why to do it, but what is it? What does it mean? And that means we're dealing with an order of words. Meaning is always metaphorical. It's always a mapping of something, experience, uh, morality, uh, human actions onto an order of words that tries to put it in some kind of perspective so that we have some kind of an aha moment, which is what we might call spirituality. The spirituality part is, I think, seeking after the same thing, but it seems to me it's a little more diffuse. It has to do more just with feelings. I think theology has to do with feelings and thoughts as they interrelate. Spirituality often, I think, has to do with a kind of broad sense of a feeling of the numinous and however that comes about. So that's a beginning. That's a, a, a kind of a, a definition thing. Uh, spirituality these days has come to mean almost anything and everything because I, many people say, I am not religious, but I'm spiritual, spiritual right? which I take to mean that they have a feeling for something transcendent, but they wouldn't know how to talk about it and wouldn't want you to tell them anything about it. Right. Anyway. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, the, the challenge of theology is something that's kind of challenging, certainly within a Jewish perspective. Uh, we are a religious faith that had superimposed on it the concept of theology well after Judaism had been in place for a very, very long time. But in my definition of theology, it's about the way in which people understand God or try to understand God. And one of our great challenges today is that when one looks at the Hebrew texts, the sacred texts of Judaism, from the Torah, the Bible, the Talmud, the Mishnah, all of our texts, and even our prayer books, which are reflective of a certain inherent theology, it's somewhat difficult to be able to mesh that idea about God or the way that God is represented or pictured into the way in which I believe modern people think or the way in which we've evolved. And in regard to the spirituality thing, we're both all aware that there was this incredible explosion of spirituality as the pathway in American culture that there were, when there used to be bookstores, there were sections just loaded with tons and tons of books on how to be spiritual. And part of what my concern about it was, was that that spirituality that was being represented and may very well be the cultural perception today has to do with internal well-being. Now, the way that I understand it in terms of Jewish expectation is that once that spiritual well-being may be internal, you are then prompted to act out in the way in which you live your life, your behavior. If Judaism is anything, it is a religion of behaviors. So spirituality is a primary step towards the actual actualization of action. But we're still stuck, I believe, in this concept of where does God or the God that we have been handed fit into that model 
because I think for many, it's very difficult to accept that. So Agreed. So t- talk to me, Rick. I mean, so the theology in Christianity and, and the denomination that you were raised in and, and, and practiced, where, do, where does that fit into your, your life right now? Have, has, has there been, because Larry alludes to this, has there been this gradual exploration, evolving development of your own personal spiritual journey? Because we, when we teach this in some of our work, we go to Exodus 3 in the Ehiyah Asher Ehiyah passage, which we can understand as this is a constantly evolving relationship. Absolutely. So and talk I, to and me I about, think, go ahead. I was to say, and if it, to me, if it isn't evolving all the time, then you end up with fundamentalism, which is a whole other question you had. So let's put you know, that aside. It is, it is always changing. For me personally, um, it, it all began, it was an experiential thing. I, I, I experienced a sense of the numinous, the transcendent and the, the metaphors of the faith that I grew up in, in the Episcopal Church, the Bible, the prayer book, the liturgy gave a structure to that, said, oh, this is a way just like what poetry does. One, one of the great poets one time said that, you know, you can have a poem memorized and it means nothing to you. And 35 years later, something happens and that line comes out because that gives the meaning that, oh, that's what that that means. So for me, it began with that, and it was a, uh, a struggle to find the way to enact what I was feeling and experiencing, to understand what I was feeling and experiencing. And that's gone through many changes. It's gone through almost a rejection of it under the influence of scientific thinking and critical thinking. And so I discovered things like biblical criticism and the way to look at the texts metonymically, that they're never going to be the whole thing. They are always things that point to something beyond themselves. Um, this is, I think, from my study also, this is very, very uh, Talmudic. It's very Midrashic. And in fact, I started to come to understand that what we are doing, what Christians are doing is Midrash on the scriptures, that the, the attempt to understand who Jesus was, they had to draw on what they knew, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the Exodus, and say, this is, this is who this, how we understand this person. So I've gone through then, of course, doing, you know, graduate work in it. You become probably over intellectualized for a time, but, uh, not so much because it's always fun. It's always, challenging. There are always moments of transcendence. There are always, and now what I'm doing with this, I've been doing a podcast of, of sermons, uh, which picks up from a parish that I do in the summer. And that has for me been the act of preaching then of, in, of, of confronting the texts and having to try to make them confront what we've been going through for the last God knows four or five years. Uh, has been another level, another place in my own journey of finding hope in those, in those ancient texts, in those metaphors, uh, an image for the hope that we live in. You can't read 
well, you read parts of Isaiah and not get much hope, but you can't read really some of the great passages of Isaiah and not find that here is an experience of a people who have lived with some of the same problems we're living with for thousands of years and yet can still say, and yet I hope, I believe, I see as, as Martin Luther King would say that the, the trajectory of, uh, history is long, but it tends towards justice. So it's a, it's always ongoing. It's, it's midrash upon midrash for me. Right. Larry, the, the journey that, and that idea, do you, do, you, do you have this sense of even as theology and the study of it has undergone so many issues that there is this constant metaphor or feeling of hope within, within our tradition? I mean, no, we're going to you know see what's fascinating. What's fascinating about today is that you and I, Richie, have had this conversation for almost 50 years. That is correct. And Rick and I have known each other for decades and have been kind of like muzzling through this whole concept. And what's fascinating as I'm pondering our conversation today is this challenge I get from my students at the seminary who are young men studying to be Catholic priests. And they always ask, well, what do Jews believe? Well, and I will say to them, I said, you know, in your context, you have a very kind of packaged concept of belief, mm -hmm. and you either accept it or you reject it. In Judaism, we are bound by certain parameters, but we're also pretty loose about a lot of other things. Where that comes into conflict has to do with what does the person in the pew hear, and how do they interpret that? What do they feel about this? And my sense in the modern world is a lot of them can't coordinate it. It just doesn't work. The idea that God is omniscient or omnipotent or that the God of the Torah is doing certain kind of acts that modern people are having a very hard time to accept or just blatantly reject. And that's why Richard and I have been having a conversation over the past couple of years about the necessity for the creation of a new theology. I don't know what it would look like, but it clearly needs to be redefined in some way that we don't just randomly throw the whole thing away. And I can understand, and one of the things that I say to my students is, Look, I can understand in 1420 or in 1712 that these ideas made the most sense. That one could, because of the nature of the environment and the experience, believe it and embrace it. And Rick, as you talk about critical thinking or scientific method or whatever those words are, whatever those systems are, in 2022, it's somewhat hard if you don't suspend all of your rationality or your um, thinking or your education to embrace the God of the Middle Ages. And mm. what I struggle with is, how do we make that transition? How do we move to a place where modern Jews, modern Christians can find 
a sense of that divine nature. Because in your path, it's even more difficult from my perspective, because you have strong definitions. So. Well, but but historically, theology has always been. You know, they always uh, it, when we when we teach history of theology in the in the Christian Church, you always start with a guy named Justin Martyr, who was an early uh, Christian Gentile Christian, who was the sort of uh, or example of what theology does, because he tried to take Greek thought, the current lingua franca of the day. Arist- I mean, a Platonic thought, and explain what the Christians were trying to do in terms of that, and that's always been what it was. I mean, you know, even even in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas was dealing with, and the Scholastics were dealing with mostly with Aristotle, who'd been rediscovered and gave a kind of philosophical base. So, it's how do you explain the experience that is recorded, and that's what I think is in Scripture is the is the record of human experience made by human beings of their experience of history and what they would call the God of history. How do you explain that in the current language? Now, to, to me, to explain that, and I found this in some of the, in the sermons I do at this little tiny parish in, on Long Island. If I don't avoid the hard parts and don't avoid science and don't try to make the scripture fit in what we've already learned about the nature of the world through physics and and biology but put those two in dialogue then people begin to 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 wake up and say oh oh okay that does make sense because we're not ignoring even the kids oh good he's going to talk about physics sort of thing now i realize the problem in that larry back to what you're saying the people in the pews that i'm worried about are not the ones with enough education or an openness to current thought it's the people who have have retreated from it into anti-science anti-critical thought and therefore can only accept have have limited the meaning of scripture to merely what's written on the page as if there were no need for interpretation which is an, an aberration it's it's very seldom in history of either of our faiths has there been a time when people did not say, here is the text. Here's what we, here's what it means. Here's what we see it saying to us. So we need, I think, Larry, back to what you're saying. What is the way that we can talk to people in a language which is under, as, as they used to say in Elizabeth, understand it of the people and yet still can you know what? Deconstruction is the word. Derrida thought he had something new. He had nothing new. Christians and Jews have been doing deconstruction for thousands of years. It is the playful engagement with the text in all the possible imaginative ways that will bring it to life. There's, there's your task. You're going to do that likewise, right, Larry? I mean, I don't know. Well, How do we do that? I have a thought about something that I've experienced, and I think Richard has also, where our community became very engaged in incorporating, which was a historic prayer for healing, into our regular services. It had not been there until Debbie Friedman, one of our great musical, innovative persons of the past 
decades, brought the Mishaberach, the prayer for healing, back into the normative concept for liberal Jews. But it also came with a whole host of, and I will say them, theological challenges. Because the next move was we started doing healing services, which made me very uncomfortable because it kind of represented this idea that, in my view, was kind of medieval, that somehow God, because you had this service, was going to change the course of physical reality. So when we would do these, I became the Debbie Downer trying to say, why are we doing this? Let's talk about what are realistic expectations. Because I was so terrified of this kind of mystical cosmic gumball machine that God was represented as that somehow it was miraculously going to remove whatever this terminal cancer or terminal kidney disease or whatever it was that we were gathering around this tragic individual who was so ill. And that's where, and again, we can have these conversations about how do we reinterpret some of these things. But for the folks that I encounter, they don't seem to either have the patience or the desire to sit and to kind of go through that hard work so that they show up for all sorts of reasons. And it may just be the concept of friendship that they might get when they show up at a service mm-hmm. and they don't even listen to what the words are that are being said by them or by the leader of the service. But I look at it and it's my difficulty. I want to know, what do I do with it? Mm-hmm. How do I make it work? And, you know, Richard knows I have this group, this study group that I work with. It's a group of women in their 70s and 80s who study every week. And I keep telling them how remarkable they are because they are absolutely the anomaly. Mm. And they actually want to understand. And one of the things that we talk about is, what are current clergy, us excluded, saying to their congregations whenever they come together for their services? And my observation is, a lot of them are merely projecting out, I'm going to use a bad term, the old theologies, Mm -hmm. that they are more comfortable with reinforcing it. Except the people in the pew, as you say, are either saying, oh, okay, that's interesting, or saying, this is a bunch of garbage. What am I sitting here for? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would see that on a Saturday morning at a bar of bar mitzvah when the guests would arrive, and there would be people who wouldn't even open up the prayer book. Or would just sit there with these looks of disdain on their faces about having to sit there before they can get their first drink or hot dog. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the dilemma we're in. So let me ask ask you a question about, let me me just follow up on something here because you're touching on something that I I wanted to raise with you anyway. Um, There's a perception, and there's been some studies, and, and certainly the Pew people have done this, of this retreat on the part of liberal religion. Christianity, mainstream Christianity, mainstream Judaism, whatever that is, and a rise in 
the more fundamentalist perspectives or definitions within our, our both of our traditions. I'm wondering, just people want structure. I, I, is the world in which we're living in so chaotic, so frightening, so overwhelming to them um, that I don't want, I can do this, I don't want that, I can do that. I don't want all these choices. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to believe in. Give me mm-hmm. structure. That's what I want. I don't need all this other stuff because life out there is so filled with so much angst. At least here, you, I, this is what I believe. This is what I stand for. This is what I'm supposed to do. Tell me how to do it. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Just, or am I totally way off base with this? No, that's it. It's, and what it's based on, it seems to me, physiologically, is fear. Right. Um, right. You know, it's that. almost like we suffer from overactive amygdalas. Uh, there is, I think there's even been some studies that people who become extremely conservative, extremely rigid are people who are simply afraid. They, they, and not only afraid, but at all these instincts that were there that at one point in our evolution might have been helpful. Uh, the xenophobia, the fear of others, the loathing that one would fear, all this stuff that is that part of the brain that is supposed to be balanced by our prefrontal cortex and our experience. It says, oh, wait a minute, those people are not like that. Or wait a minute, that really isn't something that's going to destroy me if I think. But there are a, a, an awful lot of people and the other metaphor for this may be Jung's personality types, you know, that there are people who can deal with, basically can deal with, with change and newness and imagination and other people who find change and newness and imagination frightening. Uh, it's like the fundamentalists who say, don't meditate or it will, you'll invite in the devil. Right. Uh, because if you got quiet enough to listen to your own thought structures long enough, you might find something you didn't want to know. So yes, you're right. This is a, this is a, a, and this then becomes a cultural war because it's easy to gather the fearful together under the banner of let's not change anything. Let's go back and, and keep them therefore comfortable and feed the fear and the hatred. And we all know the historical characters have done this, uh, in our time and the times before us. Well, I, I would respond by saying I really haven't met those people in a liberal setting. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that, Rick, your folks and our folks, if you kind of put them on a, on a demographic scale, are the same people. I agree. You know, and we knew that when we would work together in Glencove, mm-hmm. we were at the same fairly educational level, the same economic level socially people were very much the same so that the difference was kind of perhaps the core beliefs that sat with your church as opposed to the synagogue nonetheless i i understand the dynamic that richard is addressing in terms of the people who want the surety but i really haven't encountered those people and i haven't seen this huge shift of people who, for whatever reason, showed up in a liberal setting, however you want to define that, in a Christian liberal setting or a Jewish liberal setting, mm-hmm. all of a sudden became, uh, you know, orthodox, or they became fundamentalists. 
And I think, Rick, you once told me about some friend of yours who had become a born again and was living in Georgia or Atlanta, I think, who you ultimately spoke to and wondered about their involvement with it. And they said, no, it was, we're not that anymore. It was so exhausting being born every day, born again <laughs> every day. Um, but, you know, I understand the dynamic. And I've met people within the Orthodox community who are very close to any kind of challenge to their belief structure. And I understand that. And Richard and I have spoken about some of the people you see on TV, from a Rick Warren to a Joel Osteen. And I am still astounded because I don't understand the people who are there. No. Because if you listen to what they're saying, it's be a nice person. We're all good. You know, come on along. It's nice. Yeah. And they're there in rapture. I wish I had some of those people. <laughs> they don't exist. They would throw us out in our tushies if we ever talked like that. The rabbi's having a stroke. You know, <laughs> what's he talking about? You know, and I think the same thing would happen in the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Except you'd have nice robes. Yeah, you know, right. I, I just right. don't get it. Well, well, I mean, if this is part of this is part of our. Go ahead, Rick. I'm, go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Say what you're saying. I think this is part of our dilemma as well, because there is a um, theologically, and this is goes back to really the why we're doing this series about exploring the possibility of developing a new theology and the need for it. But there is, an, you know, a sense of, um, let me put it bluntly, perhaps a dumbing down of. Mm -hmm traditional theology, or at least the attempt, the invitation to, to encounter the God talk. Um, mm -hmm. And it bothers me because I think this leads to people saying, well, this is so simplistic. Um, and yes, when you come to a service, if all I'm doing is made to be feel good, but maybe that's really right now what all people want. They just want to feel good because life outside, though, is so challenging. Um, I think you're onto something, Richard, because that's what's happening in a lot of these mega church things. It seems to me it's a it's a it's a it's an event. It's it's happening. A happening. All over it. Not even in, because a lot of our congregations yeah. do what I call performance Judaism. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 we're going to have a, a performance. We're going to have. We're not going to really challenge you. The art of this sermon. This is a generalization based upon my experience. The art of the sermon, the challenging sermon has been um, reduced in many congregations to this what a nice feeling you know for ours too I think so let me let me before we move in because I want to move into the concept of because the high holidays are coming this concept of prayer because we're many of us are going to be sitting in a synagogue either physically or, or on the zoom machine uh, and allegedly praying for uh, the better part of, of a long time um, holding up that book. The concept of the people of the book and the idea of self-publishing, and I want to return and give a, a plug out to our sponsors, Book Baby. If the, the idea of self-publishing, I want to remind you, is not one fit all situation. And if you have your own set of goals or reaching them requires a unique set of tools, Book Baby's custom packages make it easy to decide what your book needs and provides it all in one convenient order. And they've helped thousands of authors publish successfully and will be by your side all the way to your finished published product and beyond. 
So if you're contemplating writing something, if you have a manuscript and you're looking for some help getting this out into the world, Book Baby, the number to call again is 877-961-6878. That's 877-961-6878. And the website, bookbaby.com, www.bookbaby.com. Do you pray, Larry? And if so, what's the importance of prayer? It's a wonderful question, Richard. And it's something that I struggle with, though I participate. Right. But I'm in a quandary about it. Because I don't really know where it goes. I mean, I'm always reminiscent of that line from one of our older prayer books that I constantly quote, which is, those who rise from prayer are better people. Their prayer has been answered. And I function with that mm -hmm. because I am uncomfortable with some of the language of the prayer book. And, you know, I am not a fan of the new prayer books that we have integrated into our movement because I find the language or the English that has been inserted is both unconnected to the actual text of the Hebrew traditional prayer book, but it also is too disjointed for me. And maybe that's just my nature in the sense that our new prayer books have so many options. It's constantly turn to page 132 on the top, then go to 133 on the bottom, then turn to this page. And I find that to just an intrusion of such degree into any kind of flow or kind of engagement that could take place from a kind of thematic continuation of engagement. But that's where we are. That's the books that we've chosen. The new High Holiday Prayer Book, which I find cumbersome both in uh, language as well as weight. It's a big book. And <laughs> the high holiday services <laughs> have gotten longer than they were before, which could be okay. But going back to your point earlier, the historic sermon model that I think all three of us were trained with is in many ways an, an anachronism in the modern religious setting, certainly in the synagogue. What's happened in most synagogues is there are these little vignettes that people intersperse between sections of the prayer service, which might be valuable in terms of instruction of what the ideas or the concepts might be. But I know that from people that I speak to in the congregation that we belong to, there is among a certain generational swath a longing and a loss of the traditional sermon that used to exist certainly within our movement mm -hmm. and, and within ours yeah so is this a generation are we talking really because you know we're three older white men uh, at least i'm older um thank you speak for yourself i, I am I, I i listen i know but seriously how is this very much a generational thing? Um, and, and I wonder about that, and especially with prayer. I mean, I, we, we also have 
you know, I, I don't, I don't like who is, is prayer really work, work, work with you when you, you're, you're working with a parish, you, you've done this all your life. Suppose I don't, suppose nobody's listening. Is it just for me? Is prayer really just for me? There's nobody listening. There's no person who, you know, because most of the time the answer to the prayer is no. Well, that also assumes, okay, when you say, is anybody listening? Um, even if you don't want to say that some, uh, beyond the edge of the universe being is listening, that transcendence is part of my own experience of myself and of every other human being. That I, even if I'm just speaking to that, that within me, which I do not own and which in, informs who I am and, and, and has a life that I live in relationship to. Uh, in fact, one of the, one of the, um, the my uh, mentor, uh, Lewis Weil, uh, who was my doctor father in liturgics, um, I think one of the things he came to was that the, in, in prayer, it's not so much what we're telling God as, as what we are naming before God as what we want, what we hope for, what we feel, what we're disgusted by. The Psalms are like that all the time. It's all the range of human emotions. Right. Finally, I'm going to make it honest. And it's almost as if, well, if I'm going to say it to God, I guess I must, if I'm going to say it in an ultimate sense, I must mean it. Within the Anglican tradition, the great byword is lex orande legem statuit credende. The, the rule of faith determines the rule of, uh, the, the rule of prayer determines the rule of belief. What we pray, which is why we don't have a system, we don't have a dogmatic theology in the Anglican church. The prayer book, the prayers that we say define who we are because they are what we would say to God if given the opportunity. Right. So when, when uh, Terry and I, Terry's also an Episcopal priest. She and I every evening do the daily, the daily office is the old monastic office based on the recitation of the Psalms and some reading of scripture. So we, uh, we do that as a, and then we have cocktail hour. It's very Anglican. We have e evening <laughs> prayer, and, evening prayer and cocktails. We would but, have the cocktails first. Then well, that's why, of course, then the Muslims say go not drunk to prayer. So they, you know, but we won't get into that fight with them. Anyway, the point is what that means is that what we're doing in prayer. And again, I agree, Larry. I don't, I don't know who or where that's going or where it's being accepted, but I, I do that discipline to remind myself of what it is that it's worth. What would be worth praying for? Uh, what would I want? What expresses how I'm feeling? What would I say to God if there were a God almost? Now, and this is a great thing that we learn. And remember, I used to teach acting. Uh, the great method of acting is act as if you were that's that character in that given situation. And when you do that, you start to find that, that character that you are the one who could who would pray those things. So I think just putting them in our mouth, doing the liturgy, doing the praxis, which is very we got that from from you guys. Uh do it in order to become that new thing, in order to be transformed. And just like with you were talking about with the healing prayer, whether miraculous healing happens or not, that's, you know, the, the, the healing prayer is there 
to express both a desire and to surround the person who's sick and take away the isolation and the separateness of their sickness and bring them in the context of community. So you're always enacting something. Right. I, I want to jump in for just a second, Richard, if you don't mind. Yeah, because we're going to run I'm out of time. That, I'm sorry? <laughs> Go ahead, because we're going to run out of time soon. Okay. Here's what I just have come to. This conversation today is spectacular. And what it underlines for me is something that I've been struggling with. And that is the assumptions that we make of the people in the pew about what they know, what they don't know, what they believe, what they're struggling with. And one of the things that I truly, truly believe as a result, not only of today, but of conversations in the past, we need to have this conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't happen. We just make the assumption that they know what to do with the prayer book and they understand what the words are. And we read the Torah and it's all great and everybody loves it and sing the Hebrew and go ahead with it all. And we've missed the critical piece. We haven't really oriented this generation or generations in the past. You know, someone once said, People go to rabbinical school or they become Episcopal clergy because they're trying to define their own religious lives, mm. except the majority of our folks don't do that. They just inherit it by some form of osmosis or some kind of touch or some kind, I'm going to go back to the word, assumption that they know exactly or we think that they know everything. Mm -hmm. Or that they so, don't know anything. <laughs> the other, yeah. So I, I, I am heartened by the fact that slowly but surely I have noticed there is an increase on the part of uh, many rabbis to start doing back to basic stuff with their congregation, to, to take a look at the prayer book and say, you know, yes, this is what the words mean. What do you, how do you relate to this? This is why we pray that this is, you know, this is, and um, I would urge a clergy who are listening that this is really, really fundamentally important in this day and age. Allow, let the, you know, with the blessing that we have before the Torah, uh, uh, Torah study of La Asopa Divrei Torah, to let the text speak to you right now where you are in 2022. So for those of you who are, you know, watching or listening to when you're sitting and praying either at home or at the ocean or in a synagogue on these high holidays, just suspend, just let that text, let it speak to you. It's metaphor. It's beautiful metaphor in many cases. And we'll talk about this in the course of the next couple of weeks, but let it speak to you. Um, and let those words just wash over you and let them touch all your life experiences. And in doing so, um, you may meet the concept, as Rick is saying, of the numinous or the transcendent um, in ways that you perhaps never thought of before, in which case um, the high holidays have done its job. Um, Rick, Larry, um, thank you very much for just starting us off on this series for Elul and poking and prodding and raising some issues and hopefully people beginning to to think about things in a way they they've not thought about it before. So first of all, I wish you much much health and joy and peace. 
Um, thank you very much. I hope we can do this again uh, sometime in the future and continue some of these conversations because there's a lot to talk, a lot to unpack here on a variety mm -hmm. of different levels. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank and to all of you who have joined us in today's edition of Secrets of Meaning, thank you for joining us. Um, as we move towards the high holidays, we wish you just joy and peace and most of all, health. A reminder that if you are working on a book and you'd like to talk to somebody about processing and bringing that book forward to fruition, our folks uh, who have joined us this month, Book Baby, give them a call at 877-961-6878 or visit them at their website, www.bookbaby.com. If you'd like to comment on suggests or ideas for Secrets of Meaning, contact me, rabbi address, at jewishsacredaging.com. And if you're out there and would like to become a sponsor of a series of these podcasts, again, please feel free to email me, rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com, and we'll take it from there. We invite you to visit the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page, as well as the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Secrets of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And as usual, a shout out to our brilliant producer, Steve Lubet. Thank you again for joining us. I am your host, Rabbi Richard Adras, and I look forward to greeting you on our next Secrets of Meaning podcast and TV show. In the meantime, be safe, be healthy, and be kind to each other. We all need it. Shalom, good night.